In the history of God's people, you have the book of Judges, where the theme of the book of Judges is every person is doing what is right in their own eyes, and that there is not a king, uh, and the book of Judges is a monarchy. How a king, a kingship is going to be established. And this actually begins with the people demanding that God give them a king, and that king would be Saul. And then the book of 1 Samuel traces what could only be seen as the downfall of Saul. And that's where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 18. As Saul has committed sin after sin against God, he's disobeyed the word of God. He's not followed what the Lord would have him to do. And God has brought judgment upon him and declared to him that the kingdom would be ripped from his hands and given to someone else. And that someone else is David. And so we've seen David has already been anointed. And what we've got in the, the, the chapters that we're in now is how God is raising up David to become the next king of Israel. And obviously God has quite amazing plans for David, as we'll see over the next several months as we study First and Second Samuel. But this is right in the heart of that. Goliath has just been slain. So this is right on the tail end of, of one of these greatest moments of victory in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. Goliath has gone down, and notably and understandably, there is celebration. There is celebration. Before we, I work through this passage, I want to show you a bit of its structure, which will help you kind of see the contrast that is going on. And, and what the contrasts point out is how David is being favored and essentially how Saul's reaction contrasts with that. First of all, one of the themes you find out in 1 Samuel 18 is how David is loved. How David is loved. In the, in the first five verses, you see in verse 1, Jonathan loved him. So Jonathan is David's friend and Saul's own son. Then verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him. Then if you drop down to verse 16, all Israel and Judah loved David. And if you drop down to verse 20, now Saul's daughter Michael loved David. Then verse 22, in the middle of verse 22, behold the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Look at what this is saying about David. And then finally in verse 28, which I'll read the whole verse, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. So you see that David is loved. Not only that, one of the other things that the, the text focuses on with regard to David is verse 5. Look at it. David went out and was successful. Look at verse 14. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success. Then look at verse 30 at the end of the chapter. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. So you see here how David is being presented. He's loved. He's successful. Well, look at Saul's reaction to this. Look at Saul's reaction to this. First of all, in verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. Then look at verse 15. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. And then verse 29, Saul was even more afraid of David. Now, if you look at this from David's perspective, my goodness, things are going well. The Lord is with David. David is loved by many, many people. 
David is having success wherever he turns his hand. It's a very positive picture of David. Look at chapter 19 and verse 1. Look at what this is going to bring to David's life. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. They should kill David. He's loved. He's successful. Let's kill him. So what you have in this chapter is this building contrast between the unfaithfulness and the downfall and the downward spiral that is Saul, the king, and the favor of David and what God is doing to establish David as king. So we're going to learn some things, particularly from Saul tonight. First of all, I want us to learn from Saul's jealousy. To learn from Saul's jealousy, beginning in verse 6. Chapter 18, beginning in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. This is a picture of Saul's jealousy. Again, right after this great moment of triumph over the Philistines, the Philistines, the the enemies of, of Israel, God used David to strike their champion and then to defeat them. And essentially as they're coming back from the battle, uh, the women come out and celebrate. And notice they're coming out to celebrate King Saul because he's the king. But he doesn't like what they're saying. Because they're ascribing to David greater victory than him, which is obvious, isn't it? You read about Saul up to this point, essentially he's presented seemingly oftentimes as a coward. People in Israel are hiding in holes and hiding in graves, and Saul is doing nothing about it. It's Jonathan, his son, that goes out and wins victories. And then here they are in this long standoff with the Philistines. Saul's not doing anything. The Philistines are being proactive. Goliath's out there challenging them day by day, and Saul is just taking it. He's just taking it. David does something about it. So it's accurate what is depicted here. But verse 8, Saul was very angry. Why was he angry? Why did it displease him? Because of what was ascribed to David and what was ascribed to him. Jealousy is a feeling of anger or a feeling of disdain often arising because of the accomplishments of another. And I think particularly leaders are susceptible to this. And that's one of the things we see here in Saul. So all of this applies to to all of us, but this this is a particular warning tonight for leaders. These feelings of disdain or resentment toward another person because of their success that that we're going to find out Saul is going to end up hating David and trying to kill him because Saul is concerned about how the people regard him, how the people regard him regard him. And you, you, you think about jealousy. And I'll just talk about Christian leaders because that's the world in which I live. Uh, we as Christian leaders, we, we pray for God to be at work in our midst. We want to see people saved. We want to see God's people walking faithfully before the Lord. We want to see 
a great work of the Holy Spirit of God. Well, what if that great work of the Holy Spirit of God happens at another church? Right? Lo and behold, what if, what if that other church doesn't practice expository preaching? Like, of course, is the best and most profitable way to preach. What if that happens? What, what are the feelings toward that church or that place, assuming they preach the gospel, of course, assuming they're a church, right? We're using the, the word in the biblical sense here. What are the feelings? Jealousy, disdain, it shouldn't be. It should be rejoicing with those who rejoice. One of the things I think we, we learn, particularly for leaders, but for all of us, we've got to beware the snare of desiring the accolades of people. I think that's one of the driving forces here in Saul's life. He, he desires the accolades of, of people. He wants people to be pleased. In fact, if you go back to chapter 15, you see this. This is, this is essentially where the kingdom is taken from Saul. And look at why this is. Look at how Saul explains his sin, why he did it. In chapter 15, beginning in verse 24. 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. We've got to be careful, particularly as leaders, this desire for the accolades of people, to desire to be recognized, an ambition to be celebrated by others. That's seemingly what ticks Saul off. He's the king, and David is being celebrated more than him. You find this in the Pharisees. As you look at the Pharisees and try to understand their, what makes them so evil, they love the greetings in the marketplace. They love to be recognized by people. They love the best seats in the synagogue, right? They're the people that are always on the front row. They want other people to see them. They want other people to laud them, to recognize how holy and how great and how lofty they are. They love the praise of man. And that's a, that's a, that's a cancer for a leader. And it was a cancer in Saul's life that's demonstrated here. The result is he eyes David from that day on. Now notice, notice how that is going to devolve to when we get to chapter 19, he's plotting to kill David. At this point, and this all happens very quickly, David is slain, or I'm sorry, Goliath is slain, David is celebrated, Saul's eyeing him. Very soon, Saul's going to be plotting to kill him, which brings us to verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. This is not the first time we've seen this. This is one of the ways God operates in the world. God is sovereign over, over all spirits, including evil spirits, and uses even evil spirits to bring about his purposes. In doing so, God himself is not guilty of evil. A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Now look at Saul's behavior. Day by day, Saul is raving. But notice the reason. It's because of this spirit from the Lord. So the Lord is in control of this. Saul had his spear in his hand, verse 11, and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. So there you see him trying to carry out murder. Essentially, as we study Saul, he's going to be presented as a, as, a, as a man seemingly consumed by paranoia and even madness. 
he essentially is going to make no sense for the rest of the account from here on out. Well, we learn first about Saul's jealousy. Next, and for the rest of the passage, let's learn from Saul's fear and from David's favor. I'm sorry, God's favor. Saul's fear is contrasted with the favor of God upon David. Look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. See, here's the contrast. The Lord is, is not with Saul, and Saul knows it. When Saul recognizes, and it becomes evident to everyone, the Lord is with David. I mean, David just took the, the giant down. This is the doing of God, obvious to all. This makes Saul fearful. The Lord had departed from Saul, verse 12. Verse 13, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. So essentially Saul just gives David a different job. Puts him out with a, over, over a thousand troops. And he went out and came in before the people and David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. Now this is key. In that verse, do you see why David had success? He had success because the Lord was with him. Now this word success is a very interesting word. Uh, it's, it's a word actually that is a verb form of the word to do wisdom, to do wisdom. And to have success is kind of the best way we can translate it in English. But literally, it's, it's the idea of living out a wise life. That's what David is doing. He's living out. And really, this word is, is connected to living out the word of God. You find that in Jer uh, Joshua 1, 7 and 8 where you again have this word success. It means to live a wise life. That's what success looks like in the scripture. And the reason for it is because the Lord is with him. Now, this is one of the great keys to understanding David and his faith. This is one of the glories of studying David and his writings. Is one of the, the realities of David, one of the things he emphasizes, he emphasizes God. Why is David a great military warrior? Because of God. And David is going to recognize this throughout his life. David is going to exercise incredible abilities and planning and strategy on the battlefield. And yet he's never going to take credit for it. He's going to give God the glory for it. This is, again, one of the keys to his life, one of the most important lessons to learn from David that totally contrasts Saul, the coward. Is David's confidence is in God. His hope is in God. Look at it in 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. By the way, this is a chapter so good it had to appear twice in the Bible. That almost an exact copy of 2 Samuel 22 is found in Psalm 18. 2 Samuel 22, in essence, is Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is 2 Samuel 22. Look at the language of David. Just look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. This is one of my favorites. For by you, and the you there is God, for by you I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. I, the idea of leaping over a wall is conquering a city. How does he do it? God. Look at verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. Verse 34. David, how did you get secure on the heights God set me there verse 35 he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze you have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great 
Notice David doesn't think he was made great because of his ability to use a sling to take a giant down. The reason why he's great is because of God and what God has done in his life. Verse 37, you gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. This is the great key to David's life and success, his dependence on God and the recognition that this, this is the Lord's doing. This is the Lord's doing. That is the favor of God on David to be contrasted with the treacherous fear of Saul. Look at verse 14. David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. And by the way, if you study the history, if you go back just a few chapters, you'll see that this kind of fighting against the Philistines is not taking place under the leadership of Saul. Saul is just hanging back, inactive. David, however, when he's given his first command, is going in, going out like a warrior should, like a military commander should, and he's having success because the Lord is with him and the people love him for it. Verse 17, now here we see the treachery of Saul is going to escalate. By the way, when, when, whenever Saul, so David, Goliath the giant is out there taunting the people of God. Saul is trying to use every human motivator he can to get people to go out and fight him. One of the things Saul promised was, whoever goes out and kills that giant, I'll give him my daughter in marriage. And the assumption there is the oldest daughter. That's the one that's married off first in that culture. That was one of the promises Saul made. So here we go. Verse 17, then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought. Okay, now so, so Saul has an underlining scheme here in giving him the daughter. Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Already he's plotting murder. Right? How am I going to get rid of this guy? This dude who is successful at everything he, he does. I'm afraid of him. He's got to go. Well, I'll give him my daughter if he continues to fight the Philistines. Verse 18, David said to Saul, who am I? This is, this is another great characteristic of David that we'll focus more on when we get into 2 Samuel, his, his humility. I mean, he's just won one of the greatest victories in Israelite history. He's been promised this daughter, and his response is, who am I? Who am I? He doesn't think highly of himself. He's not entitled what a, what a curse that is on our day and our age, particularly for leaders, particularly for pastors. Some person gets into a position and they think they're entitled to certain things. Here's David, the giant slayer. Who am I? And who are my relatives and my father's clan in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul. And the thing pleased him. Saul thought, ah, here we go. Here's another scheme. Us using his daughters. Using his own daughters to scheme to kill David. What a wretch. Verse 21. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time. You shall not now be my son-in-law. I mean, what treachery is this? Verse 22, and Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you. It's a lie. 
and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it not seem to you a little thing? I'm sorry. Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, so notice there's an intermediary here. David is not having direct communications with Saul. Saul is speaking to him through other channels. Saul said, verse 25, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except, by the way, look at that, no bride price except. Now here's, here's uh, the speech patterns of a person manipulating language. No price except, and, and what's the price gonna be? A hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. By the way, this seems a little bit grotesque, but it's actually quite tame in the ancient world. This is, this is just part of the, I mean, we read something like that and think that's barbaric. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's true. This is the world in which the Bible was written. Our world is incredibly tame compared to the ancient world in so many ways. When you see what ISIS does to people on television, that's barbaric and that's evil, but, but the but the bad boys of the ancient world make them look like kittens. The Assyrians collected heads and skulls. Some of the Canaanites collected thumbs and toes. There's a lot of, there's a lot of depravity that went on in the ancient world in the name of warfare. A hundred foreskins. So essentially, you're going to kill a man and then you're going to remove this part of his flesh. Which, by the way, would be an incredible dishonor and wouldn't strike well with the Philistines. Essentially, what, Paul, what Saul is doing here is he's playing the average. Right? I mean, are you really going to be able to kill a hundred of these guys and collect a hundred um, trophies like this? Right? And the law of averages, no, one of these Philistines is going to get David. They're going to hear about what he's doing. They are not going to let this go on. How in the world do you collect a hundred foreskins? This is Saul's thinking. This is a way to get rid of David. Verse 26, and when the servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law because the time had expired. David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid. So notice there's a, there's a downward trend. He's becoming more and more afraid. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Notice how different that is from verse 9. Saul eyed David from that day on. Now he's his enemy continually. Verse 30, the commanders of the Philistines came out for battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. The recognition that God is with him, God is using him, causes fear. This reminds me of Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary, Queen of Scots, recognizes that God is using John Knox and says that she fears the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of England. The recognition of God working through a person to do his will causes fear in the hearts of a, of a king. 
Now look at verse 29. It didn't turn out the way Saul schemed, did it? Saul is counting on David to get killed. Saul is counting on his daughter to be a snare to him. His daughter loves him. Not only does David bring him 100, he brings him 200. Well, what are some of the things this, this teaches us? A couple of final points. One of the things that this is demonstrating is a, is, a, is a thread that goes through all of the Bible and very strongly here, the providence of God. The providence of God over the plans of man. That the supreme rule of God trumps the schemings of an evil man. That, that essentially don't, don't lose sight of the story arc of what God has promised David. You're going to be king. Because we know ultimately that story is going to lead to God making a covenant with David that will lead to Christ, the descendant of David. This is going to happen. God said it would be done. David will be king. Now the question is, how is God going to bring it about? Now that's, that's what, where the, the story of David is going to be so instructive and I think encouraging and so helpful and so enlightening for us because the way David becomes king, and right here is the beginning of that road, or, or, or really where the, the road gets quite difficult. The story is just going to get darker and darker as you move through 1 Samuel. The, the, the decline and downfall and downward spiral of Saul is just going to trend more into the pit. But yet we're going to see God's hand in all of it for David. So again, things seem to be going great for David, but the, the king is going to plot and is plotting to kill him. The road for David to become king is going to be winding and painful. Winding and painful. This is how God often and usually deals with his servants. Particularly those servants like David, these rare people in history that God uses for a great work. The road isn't nice and smooth and easy. And for all of us, if you're going to be faithful, if the Lord will be with you, the road in this world and in this life will not be smooth. It will not be easy, quite the opposite. And David shows us that. But it's through this dark path, for instance, that you get Psalm 23. How does David have the insight to write Psalm 23? Because of the paths the Lord has led him on. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So God is leading, right? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is, this is for God's name and God's purposes. Now, you, have you ever connected that with the next verse? yes. Yay! Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Do you see the connection there? Lord is leading me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. I'm walk Where, where's he leading you, David? Through the shadow, through the valley of the shadow of death. Yet all the while God is with him. His rod and his staff is there to comfort him. God is shaping David to be a king. A godly king, not a failed king like Saul. And it's going to be a painful, difficult road that God will see it through. Now, here's some things to think about, particularly in, in, in light of leadership and what we see from Saul and how one of the, some of the ways David is different from Saul. David is not seeking esteem. Uh, this is, I think, so important to think about as, as Christians and as we think about Christian leadership. David is not seeking esteem. David is not seeking position. David is not seeking any kind of prestige. And quite, in fact... 1 Samuel 17 seemingly comes out of nowhere. This battle with Goliath, this amazing story involving David where David becomes kind of like the quintessential hero in a lot of our minds, and rightly so. David wasn't planning to fight Goliath that day. 
This is the amazing providence of God. He shows up and he goes, to, he, yes, he's faithful and yes, he's courageous. But this was unplanned. David's not scheming about, whoa, how can I become famous in Israel? How can I be great and greatly to be praised? Quite the opposite. This is the providence of God at work. In fact, when David is offered to become the king's son-in-law, which, which he earned that right, he's fearful of it. Who am I? Who would, want to be, who would want to do that? Don't you know that I'm a poor man? I'm a shepherd. This is the providence of God. This is the providence of God. This theme in this chapter of being successful, what makes a person successful? What makes David successful is that the Lord is with him. But friends, what does that, what does that success look like? Does it look like everything's going smooth and great and fine? Absolutely not. Quite the opposite in David's case. Right, David's having success on the battlefield. Every warrior wants that. Saul is plotting to kill him behind the scenes. Things are not going to be easy for David for the rest of this book. And this is where we're going to get a lot of the Psalms that we look to for hope and encouragement. Where does success come from? Where does prosperity come from? Lots of verses in the scripture will say it comes from God. Therefore, what should we do? We trust God. We're faithful. We do everything we can in life to be faithful, to obey God, to do what he says, and we trust God with the results. We don't seek esteem. We don't seek position. We don't seek prestige or the, the fame of the world or the acclaim of man, particularly in leadership. No, we seek to honor the Lord. We seek to please him. A final word about preaching and preachers, because Saul, I think, is a cautionary tale to people like me, because this day in which we live, preachers, I think, oftentimes seek their own esteem, seek to be known. And it's easier than ever with social media. I mean, my goodness. You look at social media, it's, it's self-aggrandizing, if I can say that word right. People are planning and pursuing to have their own name built up. I mean, you look at some of the garbage on social media, it's just like, look at me. And I don't know the motives of people's hearts, but that sure seems to be what it looks like. One of the things that has stuck with me uh, on this note is from Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg's a pastor up north, and he says, he's originally from Scotland, so don't, don't hold that against him, but one of the things he says about this, and, and pastors particularly, is the church is not for pastors. Pastors are for the church. What he means by that is the church isn't a place for you. It's not a place for you to, like, make a name or for you to, to become a man of esteem, or to get recognition, or, or, or whatever. No, pastors exist for the church. You're there to help the people of God. You're there to shepherd the people of God by preaching the word, and making disciples, and equipping the saints. That's why you're there. Pastors are for the church. The church isn't there for you. Very helpful, I think. Uh, I believe it was last week I got a chance to go to uh, Together for the Gospel, which is this uh, large conference. By the way, as a church, thank you. Uh, the church is very gracious to give me time off to go to a conference, kind of like continuing education. So uh, thank you for, for uh, allowing me to do that. And I got to hear John MacArthur, who's a, a hero of mine. And uh, in MacArthur's sermon, uh, he began cataloging, describing the way pastors describe themselves or the way ministries describe themselves. And friends, if you want to just see an evidence of this, just go look in my mailbox. Go open my mailbox right now, pull out the junk mail, and look at all these ministries and what they're saying about themselves. Here's what MacArthur said. 
The way pastors describe themselves are this, quote, relevant, real, authentic, missional, exponential. By the way, I have a PhD in theology and I have no idea what some of those words mean. Fascinating to me. Innovative, multi-ethnic. And then MacArthur went on to say, the, the things that I don't hear people saying are biblical, faithful, servants, holy, humble, pure, godly, separated, self-denial, sacrificial, or sanctified. Then MacArthur goes on to say this, quote, the vocabulary reflects priorities that are horrendously misplaced. I think we need to learn from Saul. It's a cautionary tale about a leader that was consumed by jealousy and about a leader who was afraid because God was working through another. Obviously, we most of all want to learn from our Lord Jesus Christ. God of very God, King of kings, exalted one, takes on the form of a servant, teaches his followers, right? There are, Jesus is on the way to the cross. He's on the way to Jerusalem. He's told them, I'm going up. They're going to betray me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be raised again on the third day. And what is the response? An argument on the road to Jerusalem about which of them will be the greatest. You can find this in the Gospel of Mark as clear as a bell. I'm going to die, guys. They're going to betray me. I'm going to be handed over to the, the elders and the chief priests. They're going to brutally murder me. On the third day, I'll be raised again. Which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Hmm. And then Jesus, in incredible mercy. I mean, isn't Jesus merciful to the blockheaded like, like us? In incredible mercy, the greatest of you will be the servant of all. This is the teaching of the Son of God. David in the Old Testament epitomizes that. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for Christ our Lord most of all in his example that fulfills the covenant made with David that sets the standard that Saul so tragically fails to live out. Help us, God, to look to Jesus as the one to make us holy and righteous, to forgive us of our sins. That, Lord, we would be men and women of faith, trusting in you, not in ourselves. And, God, that we would seek to mitigate against treachery like we see in the heart and life of Saul. And God, that we would strive to be servants of all. That Lord, in response to your working in our life, and your working in our life is astounding, our response would be, who am I? Not a focus or concentration on what is lacking or what we desire. So God, help us now to sing with thankfulness because of Jesus, Messiah, gave his life for our sins and was raised from the dead. He's worthy. It's his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We do call you to repent of your sin, to trust Jesus as Lord, as King of kings, sent by God to fulfill the plan of God. Saul and David, both flawed kings, Jesus a perfect king, who comes to deal with the problem that both Saul and David are going to demonstrate the problem of sin. So faith in him brings about the holiness and righteousness that God demands and that we all need. So trust him, obey him, be sobered by the tragedy of Saul, 
learn from his errors of jealousy and fear of man and fear of David. And, and, and let's rejoice in the fact that the Lord is with us through Christ. Christ. 